You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our text today is from Nehemiah 3, beginning in verse 1. Then Eliashib the high priest rose up with his brothers the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built, and next to them, Zachar, the son of Imri, built. The sons of Hassaniah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, son of Meshezabel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Baanah, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their lord. After him, Malchijah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants, opposite the muster gate and to the upper chamber of the corner. And between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. This is the word of the Lord. Well, no time to spare. Point number one, seeing the beauty. You thought I was kidding. Nope, not today. Seeing the beauty. An important theme in Nehemiah chapter three is the theme of repair. And the reason I say this is because that word shows up 38 times in this chapter. If you would scroll through this list, you see it over and over again. Repair, repair, repair. And interestingly, it is not the same word that we find here for build. Build means to to make something new. You go to Home Depot, you get materials, you make something new. It is not the same word as restore, which means to return something to its original state. That's an important word, but it's not the same word. Repair is a unique word that means to join or bind broken things together again. This is the work of the people in Nehemiah. It's almost entirely repair work, picking up the pieces of what used to be their city and then setting things right again. And in that sense, this isn't just an important theme In Nehemiah 3, this is an important theme throughout the entire Bible, a story of God joining broken people and places together again. What is the grand narrative of Scripture, God setting things right again? The Apostle Paul in the New Testament would explain all of redemptive history, all of unfolding history and what God has been doing since the very beginning like this. Ephesians 1, it was a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. So those frayed edges, that separation being brought back together in Jesus Christ. So here's the background. Sin brings dislocation. Whether we're talking about original sin, the condition of sin that is uh, 
in all of humanity, or we're talking about the sins that we commit or the sins that have been committed against us, sin at its root is the utter undoing and unraveling of wholeness and flourishing. It is the problem right at the heart of the human experience. What is wrong with this world? The Bible would say sin. Sin. Like illustrated for us in the story of Nehemiah and this broken down wall in Jerusalem, sin results in disgrace, it results in insecurity, and it results in ongoing hostility. It's the marring of beauty. It's like taking a priceless piece of pottery and then shattering it on the floor, broken to bits on the ground. After Thanksgiving this last year, uh, we had some leftovers, we had some family over, and so we were shoving all of the leftovers, glass containers and bottles and everything into the refrigerator. Later that night, I opened the refrigerator and it all came out. Glass everywhere, shards everywhere. For weeks and weeks, I was finding little pieces of glass in the most frightening places in the house. How did you get here? How were, were we walking barefoot just by this? Like for the last month, it was everywhere. Sin is that shattering. But salvation, salvation is the work of God setting things right again, repairing what sin has shattered in our lives, in our relationships, in our community, in our world. Salvation is God getting down to the ground and patiently picking up the pieces, finding every little bit, no matter how small and how far flung, and bringing it back together again to form something, and listen to me, to form something more beautiful than before. Kintsugi is the art that inspired our Nehemiah series art here. And it means gold joinery or gold seams. It's a Japanese art that takes broken pieces and then binds them back together with this gold joinery. And through this process, a repaired bowl becomes more valuable and becomes more beautiful than in its original state. And what's interesting about this is that rather than hide the fractures, or try to make the, the, the shattered, or the, you know, the lines or the fractures disappear, it's actually uh, making those fractures the focal point. They become the highlighted portion. Your eyes are drawn to the very fracture points that we would otherwise try to cover up and erase. And so it is with God, healing our lives, healing our fractured, broken world. Uh, the late Henry Nouwen, the author of a book called The Wounded Healer and many other works, said this. The main question is not how can we hide our wounds so that we don't have to be embarrassed. That's the wrong question. But how can we put our woundedness in service to others? If we were to reflect on that statement right there, that would be a, an a giant paradigm shift, I think, for most of our lives. The question is not how do we hide our wounds to avoid embarrassment, but how do we put our woundedness in service to others? And this is important because this is where the mending happens. This is the place where we become freed from our disgrace. And this is how we help other people in their process of healing as well. 
I mentioned earlier in our series, God doesn't make all new things. God makes all things new. He is not just wiping it clean and starting from scratch. He is making those broken pieces of our world new. And so what this means is that the transformation of Jesus and the sanctification of the Holy Spirit that we should expect in our lives does not involve erasing those fractures. It does not involve waiting for God to give us a clean slate or a fresh start. No. When Jesus mends our lives, the scars still remain. And they remain intentionally as lasting testimonies of God's grace and redemption. Scars that we must begin to see the beauty in. That's what I'm inviting you into this morning. To see the beauty in the scars. Like Jesus with his disciples in John chapter 20, after the resurrection, he does not say, hey guys, here I am, good as new, shiny and new, look at us. What does Jesus say? Look at my scars. The resurrected Christ saying, put your hands in my scars. See the beauty of these Fractures renewed. This is how the disciples identified the risen Jesus. This is how the world will identify the risen Christ at work in our lives as well. So back to Nehemiah. The broken wall in Jerusalem is a source of shame. The Bible describes the people in a condition of derision. They are a reproach. In other words, it is embarrassing to be them. It's an embarrassment. They have lived in this ongoing disgrace all around them for a very long time. And they, like maybe, maybe many of us today, had just sort of settled for this, this. This shattered existence for a very long time because they couldn't see anything different. They couldn't envision the beauty of what could be. So they simply tolerated it. They just learned to live with it. But the healing of the Lord had come to them. And what was required of them was this, to embrace the repairing work of God that he intended to do in and through this community. Anne Lamott, a modern day writer, wrote this, I do not at all understand the mystery of grace, and I have to join her in that, only that it meets us where we are, but does not leave us where it found us. Grace meets us where we are, but it does not leave us in that place. Like we see right out of the gate here with Eliashib, the high priest, the people needed to rise up and join themselves to God's renewing work. And we today, through our Savior Jesus Christ and through the power of his Holy Spirit, can and must join him as well. How do we do that? We have to begin to see the beauty in the scars. The second theme that we see here is servant leadership. Look, look with me again in verse one. Servant leadership. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, as they built the sheep gate. Now it's interesting who Nehemiah begins this long list of people with. There are somewhere around 40 groups of people, lots of names, most of which are very difficult to pronounce. Kudos to Ariel for that task today. But he begins with the high priest and the other priests. 
So I want you to envision this. The high priest was a very revered, highly honored leader in Israel. This was the one with exclusive access to the most holy place, the holy of holies. This was the one, he and his fellow priests wore the pure garments. They were not interested in getting dirty. It was, they were fitted in like royal white clothes, like we have white collar jobs here. It's not the work of the priest. And yet, what do we see? They are the first to roll up their sleeves, pick up a shovel, pick up a trowel, and get to work. So why start here? I can only speculate. But I believe it's because Nehemiah wants to show us, he wants to begin with the spiritual leaders because those are the ones that set the example for how the work is to be done. They do it humbly. They do it sacrificially. They do it thoroughly. Grace is not an excuse for shoddy work. Can I get an amen? They're leading by example. In the New Testament, the Apostle Peter would talk about spiritual leaders, specifically the role of elders, like this. And shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising authority or oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being what? Examples to the flock. That's the role. So when leaders serve, it motivates others to serve as well. I'm speaking to our elders right now. I'm speaking to our deacons right now. I'm speaking to our community group leaders and our small group leaders and our ministry leaders. When leaders serve, it motivates others to serve. We lead by example. Now, let's contrast this with some other leaders that we read about in Nehemiah 3. Look with me again in verse 5. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. Their nobles, or quite literally, their great ones, wouldn't even stoop to that level. They were too good for it. They saw this kind of work beneath them, beneath their role, beneath their station which then just forced the rest of the Tekoahites to have to work twice as hard to compensate for them. When we sit on the sidelines too good for work, it actually doubles the work of others in our place. So it makes me think today, what is it that we find right now to beneath us? I want, I want you to take some time to think about this. What do you think, and be honest with yourself, what do you see as beneath you? Where are we right now unwilling to stoop to serve? Maybe it's a role in your workplace. How many of us have said, like, I don't get paid to do that? That's crazy. Does someone else do that? Or how about our responsibilities in our home? Like, that's not a man's job. Or how about serving the body of Christ? No, 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 I don't serve kids. I don't, like, no, no, no. Like, I'm not a kid person. Or I work with kids all week long. No, 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 that's not me. Sign up to serve our kids, by the way. There are some holes in our kids' ministry right now. Where is that area of service where you have said, like, I'm too smart for this, I'm too skilled for this, I'm too old for this, I'm too tired for this, I'm too good for this? There, there is that area for all of us. Where is it? In the kingdom of God, our paradigm 
shifts. In other words, Jesus turns our ideas of power, position, and nobility upside down on its head. In the New Testament, we read of two of Jesus' disciples approaching him and asking him to be given a special place in the kingdom of God. When the kingdom arrives, we want to be right there at the action. We want to sit at your right hand. We want to be the nobles. We want to be the great ones. We want to be recognized. We were there when Jesus did his thing. We're told this in Mark 10. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, now I can only read into this. I always like to imagine Jesus' tone, but it's probably a little bit like, guys, come on. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your what? Servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man, speaking of himself, Jesus, came not to be served, but to serve and to lay down his life as a ransom for many. So little irony here in Nehemiah 3, the great ones, the nobles, they remain unnamed. Notice all the names, just scroll through Nehemiah 3 here. Lots of names, again, lots of names that we don't want to pronounce today. Nehemiah names blue-collar workers, he names seasonal workers, he names all sorts of people, but the nobles who refuse to serve aren't even worth noting. Application. When the history is written, those that were too good to serve will be the first ones forgotten. But the ones who humble themselves, they, the Bible says, will be exalted, will be honored. Servant leadership. The third theme we see here is sacred work. Continuing here in verse one, second half of verse one, they, speaking of the priests, consecrated it, speaking of the sheep gate, and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of 100, as far as the Tower of Hananel. So what this shows us right here is that the people of Jerusalem understood that this was so much more than working on a wall. This was so much more than just being assigned like a portion of the wall and specific tasks and specific positions in this work. To consecrate something is to sanctify it. It means to be set apart as holy. It is to regard something as sacred. And so in the Old Testament, it almost always involved elements of temple worship. The priests were consecrated. The altar, the sacrifice, even down to the utensils, the bowls that carried things were consecrated for the Lord in the temple. But now, but now, the work outside of the temple. And this would have been scandalous here. The work outside of the temple among the lay people, the common people, the non-clergy in the secular space, that is being sanctified, that is being consecrated. 
So as the priests consecrated the wall and the entire project, what they are reminding the people of is this. You are working for the Lord. This isn't ultimately masonry. This isn't ultimately carpentry. You are serving the living God. Your work is now your worship. It reminds me of what Paul would tell the New Testament church in Colossians 3. Whatever you do, work heartily. As for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. Whatever you are doing, hear me, friend, you are serving the Lord Christ. What dignity! So that separation that we think of between the sacred and the secular, maybe you even see it in terms like spatial terms, like we are in the sacred space here and then we leave for the secular space out there. That separation is removed. There is no more like, well, I just do this or that. I have like a secular job, you know, just it, like it's not that important. Or I just stay home with the kids. It's not that impactful. Or I just do a bunch of overlooked things. No one really appreciates me. No, no one really cares about what I do. When the work is consecrated, all that nonsense goes away. All of that nonsense goes away. And it is all flooded with spiritual significance. Flooded with spiritual significance. Whether it's serving within the body of Christ, which is the call of every Christian, or it's the work that we do throughout the week as a job, or maybe as a student, it's the grades that you're getting, it's the tests you're studying for, it's the homework you're turning in, it's the interactions with teachers and students that you engage in throughout the week. Or maybe it's the things that we do for our families in the home or for our friends or for our neighbors. And the list goes on. It is all sacred work. Hear me clearly. You are serving the Lord Christ. Can I get an amen? It's interesting. We have dedication rituals even to this day. We, we read about things in, in, the, in the Bible where we're like, oh, that's so ancient, so archaic. But think about the, the, the dedication rituals that we still have to this day, like a red ribbon cutting ceremony. They still do this. I'm always curious what they do with the, um, the big scissors afterwards. Like, there's a very dangerous landfill somewhere with these sharp scissors. Or if you're bougie and you got a boat, what do they do? Take a bottle of champagne, I think, still, I'm told. I'd like a boat one day, but you know, and they crash the, the, the bottle of champagne or whatever against the boat. It's a ritual of dedication. But for the priest, this almost always involved anointing oil or more specifically, the sprinkling of blood. If you read throughout the book of Exodus in the Old Testament, what you see is that the priest and the altars were set apart through blood. So, it's no surprise that this is all happening and this work, this consecrated work, begins at the sheep gate and then spreads out from there because this is the place that the sheep would be brought in for temple sacrifice, for the altar. And so this consecration was so much more than just a pronouncement of blessing. It was often a covering with blood. And this is important because things aren't made sacred through cheap words. Things aren't made sacred through empty blessings. Things aren't made sacred because a priest pronounces it over something. Things are made sacred through costly grace. Things are made sacred through the blood of a sacrifice. 
Fast forward to the New Testament. The Apostle Peter opens up the, the letter of 1 Peter like this. To those chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, and this is beautifully Trinitarian here, by the way, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the, there's the word, sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient and to be what? Sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. So it's not just that our work is sanctified. It's that our lives are sanctified. We are set apart. We, through faith, have been sprinkled in the blood of Christ. We have been consecrated. We have been made holy unto God. Everything that we are has been made sacred in the presence of God. So what this means is that we don't have to do or become something extraordinary to engage in sacred work. We don't have to occupy a special position. If anything, I think the Bible would teach us to try to avoid those places of nobility. We just simply have to belong to God. How do we belong to God? Through faith in Jesus Christ. Through faith. Let me point out one last thing before I move to our closing point here, that there's another repeating phrase in Nehemiah 3. There's actually quite a few repeating phrases, which makes just a preacher's job very easy. Just look for the repeated phrase. But there's a repeated phrase. I want you to, to turn your attention to verse 3 here. It says that they set the doors, its bolts, its bars. They set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. It repeats in verse 3, 6, 13, 14, 15. Right? The bolts and bars, the bolts and bars, the... Okay, on and on and on. But notice verse 1. And I love the Bible. So no apologies for nerding out right now. The Bible is very, very enjoyable if you just take time to pay attention. So unapologetic nerding out on Scripture right here. Look at me in verse 1. Notice something. It says, they built the sheep gate, they consecrated it, and set its doors. Period. What do you notice? No bolts and bars. So of all the doors mentioned, the sheep gate is the only one mentioned, not having a lock on it. Think about this. The way that the sheep enter, the gate closest to the temple where God would meet with his people, that door remained accessible and open. And it's that very location. I don't know how wide it is, but I have to imagine it wasn't like giant. That very geographic place, that very gate, that very door, at a certain point in the ministry of Jesus, came to his mind. And he told his disciples this in John 10. And so Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. If anyone enters by me, he'll be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes to only steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Can I get an amen? That's where the church amens. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock and one shepherd. That very gate, Jesus says, is me. Some of you today may be on the outside looking in when it comes to participating in the work of God. Maybe you just have not arisen to join. Maybe you were content, or maybe not content, honestly, just sitting on the sidelines. 
Maybe it's because you think that the work of serving God and his people is beneath you. Or maybe it's you think that you're not qualified or that you're not worthy or that there's no place for you. I don't know that reason. Maybe you're sitting sort of on the sidelines wanting to participate but not knowing how to jump in. But also I have to imagine that some of you may actually be on the outside of God's kingdom entirely. Not just missing out on the work but missing out on God and his mercy and his life. And what this shows us is that you can't sneak in, you can't climb in, you can't find another way in, you can't barge your way in, you can't work your way in, you can't build your way in, you can't obey your way in, you can't ride in on the faith of your parent or your spouse your way in. You yourself have to enter through the sheep gate, which the Bible tells us is through trusting in Jesus Christ. It's exclusive. I'm not going to make any apologies about that. Not always lead in just one way, Christ. We're learning. But it's inclusive. Because Jesus himself says, if anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And we'll go in and out and find pasture. The door without locks, by God's grace right now, still remains open and accessible. No bolts and bars. No bolts and bars. Let's look finally at the theme of solidarity. Look with me again in verse two and then verses four through five. And next to him, the men of Jericho built, and next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri built, and next to them, and next to them, and next to them, and next to them. See, lots of repeating phrases here. So what becomes evident, as I mentioned earlier, is that this is so much more than just building a wall. It's almost as if the wall becomes a prop. This is about God rebuilding a people together. The wall, the rebuilding, the project, the place that they occupy, it is important. This is not less than what they are building, but it is more. And the city of God and the people of God are in this moment, through this project, regaining their dignity. They are stepping out of shame, they are stepping out of ruin, and they are faithfully stepping into newness together. This is a picture of solidarity. God is bringing so much more than just stones and brick back together again. He is rebuilding his people or as Peter would describe it in the New Testament, like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. What am I? I'm a living stone being fit in with others. So no matter who they are, no matter where they come from, regardless of their experience or their age or their gender, they all have one unified purpose. We are here for the repairing And that's a unique word because we're here for the work of repairing, but in the process, we're here to be repaired as well. And what we see is that this solidarity has nothing to do with similarity. Their solidarity is not founded on being the same. These are people from all different walks of life, various people, various places, various occupations, Occupations, various ages, various social status. There are some people that are single. There are some people that are married. Some bring their sons to work. Look at me in verse 12. It says, Shalom brings his daughters to work. Go girl dads. There are people that knew exactly what they're doing. And there are people who had no idea what they're doing. I don't know what we're doing, 
Give me a trowel. I'm here. Nehemiah even lists, as you scroll on in verse 8, Nehemiah, Nehemiah lists perfumers. I, I don't know about you, but like if I wanted to recruit for an important building project, the least likely place I would think to go is like the Dillard's fragrance section. <laughs> like, has anyone ever told you that you would make an excellent builder? And they're like, um, no, but would you like to try Chanel number five? Like, I have to spritz you or I'm going to get fired here. <laughs> Derek Thomas once said, ordinary folks with no special skills along with others with noted skills work together in a way that still takes our breath away. Achieving in a relatively short space of time what they had not been able to do for decades. Over 40 different groups are identified here and together we find them working, relying on God's promises, practicing neighbor love and exercising loyal faith in a project that they knew to be at the heart of God's design for the kingdom. This is the breathtaking work reality that we get to display when we unify as the church today. Breathtaking. The project that we know to be right at the heart of God's design for the kingdom, his church And in such a divided world, I'm not having to convince anyone of this right now, in such a divided world, solidarity, solidarity is what's breathtaking. What is the gold joinery that God, the artist, is bringing in our midst? Loyalty and love. As a diverse group of people, from very different walks of life, unite in our love for Jesus Christ and love for his bride, the church, shoulder to shoulder, committed to the work, trusting Jesus' promise that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it and rising up to join him as well. We are here for the repairing work. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for...